there. Let's bow our heads. In Jeremiah 23, God made this promise to his people, to all of his people. He said, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely, do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And Father, we understand that the fulfillment of that promise is your son, Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, the one who was lifted on high. Father, he was lifted up from the earth in crucifixion, and now he's lifted up to heaven to his throne, exalted. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is our righteousness and our only hope. Father, I thank you this morning that with reminders from these songs, Father, with the truth of your word in front of us and in our ears, we're we're reminded, we're assured, Father, that, that we don't come to you this morning um, in, a, in, in a wishful kind of hope. Father, we don't come here this morning uncertain of who you are and what your word says, but the message is very, very clear. There is a God. It's you. You are in control. You are in charge. You are sovereign. You are king. And you are also deeply, passionately interested in our lives. Father, you, were, you cared so much, the word says you loved us so much that you gave us your one and only son, Jesus Christ, because we couldn't pay the price for our sin, we couldn't sweep it under the rug, we couldn't cover it up, we couldn't, we couldn't fix it and work our way up to be pleasing and acceptable to you. Father, your word says, apart from you, we had no hope, and then you sent Jesus. And Father, he is the hope of the world. He's the hope of, of those of us here this morning who know you. He's, he's the hope for those here this morning who don't know you. But if they'll, if they'll repent and return and turn to you, Father, they can, they can know that same assurance and joy that we as your people have here today. And Father, while we haven't seen it yet, I thank you that this promise, that there's some of it yet to be fulfilled, that there is a day coming when the whole world will dwell securely. Father, when there will be peace from one end of the earth to the other, from the highest heaven all the way down here to where we are, because Jesus will reign over all the earth. Father, he will be acknowledged. Every knee, your word says, will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Father, until that day, we're here to do it now, to confess and to acknowledge and to worship the one who's worthy of all our adoration and all our, all our praise and all our worship. And Father, my prayer is that having sung his praise and, and now turning to your word, that you would, Father, that you would speak to each of our hearts in a very real and a very personal and a very specific way. Father, no preacher has the ability to do that simply through the power of spoken words. The only way that, that you can deal with our hearts is if you send your Holy Spirit. And Lord, the, the activity and ministry of your spirit combined with the truth of your everlasting word, Father, can point us in your direction, can draw people to yourself, can cleanse us of our sin, can bring the conviction and the hope and the healing that we need. And, and Father, I'm just trusting you that in your own perfect way, you're going to do what you need to in each of our hearts this morning. For that to happen, we simply ask, as always, that you would come and, and guide us in truth as we study your word. That you would guard us from error and misunderstanding as we study your word. Father, as we go to your word this morning, you deliver us from anything we might have carried in with us that's in the way. Father, that could be something very, very bad and hard. It could be something very, very good that, that we've put our hope in that's, that's so much less than Jesus Christ. And Father, my prayer ultimately is simply this, that, that as we study your word, we would see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning, and may we see him only this morning. And Father, when we leave this place in just a little while, 
I pray that, that we'll leave not simply glad we got up and came to church, not just grateful that it's spring and it's a sunny day, but grateful that there is a God in heaven and a Savior who lives and who reigns and who is promised to always be with us. Father, be with us now and make yourself known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's dismiss for Children's Church. If you're visiting today and you have some children with you, Children's Church is for our five-year-olds up through our second graders, and they're going to go spend some good time in God's Word, just as we intend to do here as well. So if you have your Bible, those of you not leaving for Children's Church right now, grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. This morning we're going to be in in Acts chapter 19. We we got into the chapter last week. We're now in it in full. And we are also now fully into, or we're entering fully into what is the third and the final missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We've, We've been through these first couple of journeys as he's taken the gospel from one place to another. Now this is the third and final journey Paul takes. And and the bulk of it is going to be spent, I mentioned this last week, we're going to see it specifically today in the great ancient city of Ephesus. So find your way to Acts 19. I want to read the, the text in its entirety as we begin, so I'll give you just another moment to get there. And as you're, as you're doing that, let me just mention a couple of things, not related to the sermon, but very much to, uh, to who we are and things coming up as a church. For one, I just want to reiterate what Scott mentioned earlier about Friday night in our prayer gathering. I know a lot of you participated in our first prayer gathering. Uh, many of you came out during Easter week for, for the, the nightly prayer and worship times we had, and we're just looking to, to do another one of those this Friday night. And so if you came and enjoyed it, we encourage you to come back. If, if you weren't able to come but are curious, come out Friday night and pray with us. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're just going to seek God's face. There's no other agenda than simply to be with him Uh, But I think what we find when we do that is that's enough. And so uh, we may be here an hour, a little bit longer, but I can't encourage you enough to come be part of that with us. And and, and also then I just want to mention in terms of prayer, and we didn't mention this earlier, is uh, if you've seen the email sent out, we're, uh, we're asking specifically that as a church family, we would be praying in a very focused way this Tuesday. Um, you've been following with us for the last year or so our pursuit of the plaza building, and Tuesday's a big day. Uh, because our offer on the building goes before the bankruptcy court because the owner of the building is, is going through that proceeding. And, and so really, uh, where it goes from here, the next step is sort of, uh, humanly speaking, in the hands of that judge. And we're going to continue to ask, if you read the email, not that we pray, oh God, give us the building, God, give us the building, God, give us the building, but instead, God, your will be done. And if you want to have us, want us to have the building, give us the building. And if you don't want us to have the building, then even at this late hour, take it away. But, but we need to pray that God's will will be done. And so we invite you to spend some time on Tuesday, maybe take the whole day if you're willing to, to fast with us, as many of us will be doing, um, just to, on your own. Um, we encourage you to do that as well. Uh, again, we're not going to beg God for our will to be done. We're going to plead with him that his will will be done and that we will accept it joyfully, whatever it turns out to be. So prayer is kind of a big deal this week, and, and, and that's the way it should be. And I simply wanted to bring those things Uh, to your attention. With that said, though, we need to get into God's Word. And I'm going to begin reading this morning in Acts 19, verse 8. I'm going to go down through verse 20, where, as I said, we really see Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus begin in earnest. And it says this beginning in verse 8. It says, And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue in Ephesus and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them, that is, those who gathered, the Jews who gathered regularly in the synagogue for worship, about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, the way being the gospel, 
he, Paul, withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you, or I, I insist that in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, their sins. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So, we might say once again, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, back in 1997, Scientists who were working on and working with the Hubble Space Telescope published a picture of what is now known as the Pistol Star, the single brightest star, at least known star, in the whole Milky Way galaxy. Now, the Pistol Star, sort of there in the center of the screen, sits about 25, they tell us anyway, about 25,000 light years from where we are here on planet Earth. It's so big, in fact, that the circumference of this single star, the biggest, brightest star in the Milky Way galaxy, would fit in comfortably uh, just about equal to the entire orbit that the Earth travels in a 365-day year. That's how big this star is. It burns with an intensity 10 million times stronger than the sun we see up in our sky every morning. And as such, it releases, the pistol star does, as much energy every 20 seconds as our sun does in an entire calendar year. We're talking about a really, really big star. But the unusual thing about the pistol star, about this particular star out in outer space, is that it's absolutely, or so they tell us, invisible to the human eye. And invisible as well even to man-made telescopes because it is shrouded in an impenetrable cloud of cosmic dust that they've tried every way they can imagine to see through it and they simply cannot get it done, which prompts a very obvious question. Well, then where did this picture come from? How do we have a picture of something that they've been trying now for two decades to see and they still can't get through this cosmic dust to see? Well, I don't understand all the science behind it, but what they say they have been able to do is through all sorts of magic based on computers and other things is, is that what we see, and you can see if you look at the picture, it looks a little bit computer generated. The fact of the matter is that that's, that's the case. And what it is, is that picture, this image representation of the pistol star is a combination of thousands, if not millions, of computer-based images. They're taken uh, from infrared rays that, that a computer then converts into color and assembles them all, resulting in this picture, or the best picture we can come up with, of what is the single, as I said, brightest and largest star in our galaxy. 
And I show that to you, and I mention that to you as we begin our time in God's word this morning, because in a similar sense, this morning's story in Acts 19 is doing the same sort of thing when we read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Because one of the things we learn in Acts 19, or we're reminded of, is that there is a vast, listen, a vast, invisible, but very real spiritual realm all around us. There is a realm all around us, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We can't see it. It's absolutely invisible to human eye in terms of physical perception, but it is a very real, very powerful spiritual realm, and it is the realm, the spirit world, in which the ultimate battle between good and evil, between heaven and hell, rages. And in this battle, there's one prize that everyone's after, that the forces that are battling in this spiritual realm are after, and that's human souls. The lives of men and women and young people, and the question of where they will spend eternity. Will it be with Jesus Christ, or apart from Jesus Christ? This battle is raging around us all the time. And and it's a realm that I believe, though invisible to human sight, we're given three glimpses of in the story we just read. As Paul, again, is ministering in the city of Ephesus. In fact, as he settles into what ultimately became more than two full years of ministry in the city of Ephesus. Now, something you may not know about Ephesus, and I didn't really know this either until recently, is that it was hardly a place that we're going to get these three glimpses, and and maybe you even picked up already some good and some great things happened there. But the the city of Ephesus, when Paul and and company arrived in town, was, was hardly anything close to a place hospitable to the gospel that welcomed in Paul and the message of Jesus Christ with open arms. In fact, this vast city of 300,000 people was, was probably something to the very other end of the spectrum. In fact, one source says, describes the city of Ephesus in this way. He says, Ephesus was, quote, a cesspool for the occult. The water hole for every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal imaginable. He says, con artists, murderers, and perverts of all kinds found the climate of Ephesus unusually agreeable. That's the kind of place God told Paul to go and share the gospel and preach the message of Jesus Christ. And and as such, because that's the nature of what this place was like, a dark, wicked, spiritual place. And here comes Paul and company with the gospel. What we're really seeing and what I want to show you in the passage this morning are three times those forces collided in this story. Three encounters where the unseen forces of heaven and hell collided in Ephesus and what happened when they did. So let me show you these three encounters, the first of which is found in verses 8 through 10. And it was an encounter that that if I were to summarize for you what happened in these three verses, it was an encounter that that was simply a, a, a case of opposition, and we've seen this sort of thing before, opposition to the word. Simply put, opposition to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because again, if you look with me at verse 8, here's what we're told as Paul settles in. We're told that he entered the synagogue, look at your Bible, and continued speaking out boldly for about three months, which by the way was probably something of a record for Paul. I mean, what have we seen in, in, in Acts so far? He gets like three days, maybe three weeks in other places, and then there's a riot and they run him out of town. Three months is a pretty good stretch for Paul. He's probably feeling good about the way things are going. So he preaches the gospel in the synagogue, and it says what he was doing. It says in the synagogue for these three full months boldly, he was reasoning and persuading with them, with his fellow Jews, about the kingdom of God. Now, what that most likely means is what Paul was doing is he was going through what what we call the Old Testament. 
Promises that were made about a, a coming kingdom, about a future king, like just like we saw in Jeremiah a little bit ago, uh, that there's a king on the way, a holy kingdom. It's going to be in Israel, and God's going to use it to sort of bring righteousness on the whole world. And what Paul was doing saying, hey, gang, remember all these promises we're so familiar with about this future coming kingdom and glorious king? Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus Christ, who I proclaim to you, is the fulfillment of all those great promises of God. That's what's going on for three months according to verse 8. But soon enough, as was inevitably the case everywhere Paul had been before, it says that some along the way were becoming hardened and disobedient in their heart and their spirit. Speaking evil of the way, which is how they referred to, to the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, just the way before the people. And so what did Paul do? It says he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, those who were following and believing and trusting in Jesus, and reasoned daily with them in the school of Tyrannus, which must have been some sort of lecture hall or collegiate type place where he could go and and just continue to, to do his teaching ministry. And it was tempting just to look at those couple of verses and say, well, here we go again. I mean, same story, different day, same song, different tune. Everywhere Paul goes, this is the way it goes down. Kind of dismiss it and, you know, show me something I haven't seen before. But I don't think we should do that. Here when we look at at verses 8 and 9, rather than merely say, here we go again and move on, I think we would do well to pause long enough to really consider and to really absorb from this scene and, and from the others like it that came before, that this gospel, listen, this gospel that Paul preached, this gospel that we seek to preach similarly here today, is not a neutral message in any way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a neutral message. It is a polarizing message that deals with people at the deepest and most personal heart level. What I'm saying to you is this, is I think there are times when we need to come to grips as glorious as the gospel is, and as much as we celebrate and are thankful and grateful for how it's changed our lives, and we want to share it with other people and see them believe in Jesus too, and all of that stuff is right and good, and it is the mission we've been given at the same time. I think we do well to be sobered by remembering the fact that every time it's shared in whatever form preaching from a pulpit or across a breakfast table, dark spiritual forces go to work to mess the message up and to keep people from hearing it. And and from one end, it's something as maybe we would say as simple as ordinary as mere distraction or confusion. I just don't get it. To the other end of the spectrum, you know what it is, persecution, martyrdom, violence against the gospel. This is not a neutral message. This is not a message that people are willing to to let alone and and just sort of go on unhindered because there's a spiritual battle raging behind the scenes. And so every time, I believe every time the gospel is preached, even as we seek to do it here this morning, and it may be very quietly, simply in individual personal hearts, there are efforts being made on Satan's behalf to extinguish the wildfire, to stamp out the message, to halt the spread of the gospel and say, no, not getting this one. Who is it? Honestly, you watch the news. Who is it that's being marched to the Mediterranean seashore now it seems like on a regular basis? It's Christians. People of the cross. People of the way. I know others are being persecuted as well. Nobody's being persecuted like followers of Jesus Christ. It's a whole different deal. And there's a war going on. And it's not a war we can see happening, but we see the fruit of it 
and the reality of it. What am I saying to you? I'm saying opposition to the word is real. It is bigger than what our eyes can see. And there's a sense in which if it doesn't frighten you or at the very least sober you, it should. To say this is not a game. This is serious stuff. Yet, isn't it interesting At the same time, though, all those things are true, and you know in your heart they are, just like I do. Isn't it interesting, and this is where the story goes next, how such opposition, despite the fact that that there is opposition, and it is serious, and at times it is deadly, and and all the rest that comes with it, isn't it interesting how, how ultimately, one way or another, sooner or later, every little bit or great bit of that opposition ends up amplifying the message of the gospel? Isn't that interesting how that works? How it amplifies the message, and I mean, sometimes I think, doesn't Satan get tired of this game? I mean, he does something, and then it only makes the gospel spread further. And it's true, it amplifies the message and gives a bigger platform to the gospel because every time those North African martyrs, and I don't mean to minimize that at all, are marched to the seashore, why do they die? It's because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus Christ. People ought to look at that and go, man, there must be something to that. Every time. Or whether it's here in verse 10, back in the early church, the book of Acts, where it says this, Paul was once again driven out of the temple. Verse 9 says, people became hardened and disobedient. They spoke evil of the way. And so Paul just said, listen, before this thing gets out of hand, as it's done before, before there's violence, I'm just going to withdraw from them, take away the disciples. Three months was a nice run, but what happened? Well, he goes to the school, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and for the next verse 10, two years... He got to keep preaching. So that, listen to this, all who lived in Asia, that's the province of which Ephesus was the capital, heard the word of the Lord. Jews and Greeks. Does God know what he's doing? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. There's a battle between good and evil, and it looks for a while like evil wins, and yet God turns it around for his own glory, and he keeps the wildfire advancing. It's actually believed during this time, verse 10, as it says, for the next two years, uh, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord, that that's when the seven churches of, of Revelation, you've heard of that, Revelation 2 and 3, were established, as well as countless other churches and believers, people won to Jesus Christ in those two years, opposition to the word. It was tough, and it was real, but God turned it around and pierced the darkness, and the gospel did it. There's a battle going on behind the scenes, and and scary as it is sometimes, God still uses it for his glory. That's the first glimpse that we're given in verses 8 through 10. It's immediately followed by a second, perhaps more dramatic one. Encounter number two in verses 11 through 17. After this opposition to the word, or probably simultaneous with it, there was an act or an occasion of, of deception in Jesus' name. In verse 11, a new scene or a new encounter, this unseen spiritual battle between good and evil unfolds, and it's an encounter that revolves around deception in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, as we dig into this, these next several verses, let me just say right up front, I have no idea what to do with verses 11 and 12. No idea whatsoever how to take those couple of verses and say, here's what you're supposed to do with these and apply them to your life. Because what did it say there again? It says, well, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried from his body to the sick and diseases were leaving them and evil spirits went out. I think that's really cool. I just don't know what to do with it. So you go home and work on that one. What, What that means, you shoot me an email if you figure it out. I will simply use it to say this. Let's acknowledge that what happened here, far-fetched as it may sound, must have been real. 
I mean, I know we know as believers we can trust God's word, but I think maybe to someone who would be skeptical, I think the evidence that it really was happening, and these as they're described as extraordinary miracles were taking place, must have really been happening, because as often is the case when things like this are going on, it spawned a band of imitators in verse 13. People who wanted to do the same kind of thing. What does it say there? It says, but also... So Paul's doing all this stuff, or rightly said God is doing all this miraculous, amazing stuff through him. Evil spirits cast out, diseases leaving people simply because these garments are being carried back and forth. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, we would understand these are people of Jewish descent, but certainly not followers of the one true God, who went from place to place, traveling exorcists, itinerant exorcists, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you or I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and they're trying to do their exorcism thing. And we understand, or at least if we've been following along, if you've been following along through the book of Acts, we understand that the miracles Paul did were obviously acts of God, uh, abilities or opportunities God gave Paul, and really for a couple of important reasons there at the beginning of the church. Not that God doesn't do miraculous things today. I firmly believe that he does. That God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. But in this case, these extraordinary miracles are taking place primarily for a couple of reasons. One, to authenticate Paul as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. It's sort of God's way of saying, yeah, this is my guy. Pay attention to him. And I'm going to enable him and Peter and James and others to do some extraordinary things to get your attention and, and to turn you to Jesus. I, I believe these miracles also at the same time authenticated or affirmed the, the truth of the message as well. I think there is something to this gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel has the power to change us because they didn't have the New Testament like we do to, to, to look to and to speak from and, and, and all these other advantages and, 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 and whatever else. So this is the way at the beginning of the church, God's working in an extraordinary way to get people's attention through the ministry of Paul and others. But that's not what the guys in verse 13 were, were all about. The guys in verse 13, they were intrigued by the power. The miracles got their attention. The wonders that Paul was doing, I mean, that had gotten them to sit up and take notice, but they were in it or they wanted in on the action for different reasons. They wanted power and acclamation for themselves. They wanted to take what Paul was doing, and, and in a sense, they're like, you know, we've got a lot, and it says they were Jewish exorcists, they traveled around, they were clearly into the occult, into the spirit world, which would have fit well with what the, I told you, the, the attitude or the, the, uh, the environment of Ephesus was like. And they're thinking, you know, man, there must be something to this name of Jesus, because whenever Paul uses it, amazing stuff happens. In the name of Jesus, demons are coming out, and people are getting healed, and all these great things are going on. And they're thinking, man, that would be a great tool in our toolbox, wouldn't it? I mean, we've got other names and gods and spells, and but this name of Jesus, there's something to it. And so what did they do? They just put it in their toolbox. Well, let's start doing our thing in the name of Jesus. It works for Paul. It must work for us, or hopefully it will as well. But what do the next few verses show us? Well, what they show us is that in pretty short order, they were shown, these imitators were shown for what they really were, not just imitators, but ultimately deceivers. And I think it's actually shown, if you pay attention to those next three verses, it's, it's sort of given to us in a, in a comical kind of way. Look again at what it says. It says, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. They were appropriating the name of Jesus for, for, for unbiblical and, and unholy sorts of activities. And, 
And they were trying to to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And it says apparently one day they went to do this over a certain man. We don't know who he is. But it says as they were trying to cast out the evil spirit, evil spirit strikes up a conversation with them. He speaks back to them. And he says this, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? (laughs) I mean, I know Jesus. What does it say about the name of Jesus and the demons? I think it's in the book of James. It says they know the name of Jesus and they shudder. We know who Jesus is. And we're aware Paul is sort of on Jesus' team. And so we pay attention, but who are you guys and what in the world do you think you're doing? (laughs) And then what do they do? I actually think this is hilarious. It says the man whom, I know I probably shouldn't, but it says the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, seven men, and overpowered them and subdued all of them and ran them out of the house naked for good measure. You know what this is? This is a reverse exorcism. (laughs) Is it not? The evil spirit takes charge and drives them out. Now, that's a great story, and that would have been fun to be standing out on the corner and watch happen. But it's also a reminder of where we began this morning of something very serious. The spirit world is nothing to mess around with. It is real. And it's nothing to mess around with. On one hand, it it points to the very serious reality of demonic power. Again, that this world, though unseen, is real and it is active. On another, though, and this is perhaps more relevant to us as believers, I think it also shows that not only should we not mess around with the evil spirit world, we should be very careful with how we use the name of Jesus as well. That as believers, we need to be thoughtful and purposeful I know we love the name of Jesus, and we proclaim the name of Jesus, and we speak it, but I think there's a maybe just sort of a subtle lesson here to, you know, let's let's not be too casual and careless with the name of Almighty God, with the one who's seated on a throne, high and exalted, the one whose name is above all names. Let's make sure it's not just a cliche, sort of a, you know, magic words at the end of our prayer to hopefully assure we get what we want, not something we just throw into songs to make them more spiritual without really thinking and contemplating, reverencing the one to whom and of whom we're speaking. The name of Jesus is a precious name. It's a powerful name. And we must be careful because I think what happened here also gives fairly, fairly swift proof given the, uh, the, the gap of time between when Jesus said it and when it happened that Jesus, remember he said to his disciples right at the end of his earthly ministry, he said, on, on the last day, on the final judgment, there's going to be a gang of folks standing before me. They said, Lord Jesus, Jesus, in your name we did this. In the name of Jesus we did that. In the name of Jesus. And what's Jesus going to tell them? Depart from me. I never knew you. You knew my name, but you didn't know me. Let's be careful with the name of Jesus as we magnify and worship him. It's a powerful name. And let's also once again notice what this second strange encounter produced. Because once again, God takes something that's very ultimately evil and mysterious, unusual and even a bit humorous, but he turns it all around or uses it for his glory. says, this became known to all. What? That these guys were messing around with the name of Jesus and God didn't let it go on. This became known to all, and what happened? Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and in the the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. 
they went out to abuse and misuse, to ultimately Satan behind it, to corrupt the name of Jesus and confuse those who would hear it and, and respond to it. What's God doing? Oh, no, no, we're not going to let this go on. I will use it to magnify the name of Jesus so that all in Asia and all in Ephesus, Jews and Greeks, know that there is power in the name of Jesus. That, that he is, as we sang earlier, the hope of the world. And, and when used rightly, it shows that the name of Jesus pierces the darkness too. There's darkness all around us, but, but Jesus knows how to pierce it. That then leads to a third and final encounter, or at least it follows next in the story. First of all, there's this encounter, opposition to the word, nothing new, same sort of thing, but, but God uses it, turns it around for his glory. Then, then there's this second encounter of deception in Jesus' name, and, and, and it's being corrupted and misused, and God turns it around for his glory. Now, God goes to work, the Lord goes to work in verses 18, 19, and 20, not on those outside opposing, but he begins to go to work within the church, the body of believers, and this encounter, this third and final encounter between good and evil is, is simply an occasion of purification. Not simply, but it's, a, it's an occasion of purification among the believers, among those who actually were followers of Jesus Christ. God's dealt with those to a degree on the outside. Now he wants to deal with those who are within. You know, before we look again at the verses, let me just point out, and, and I think many of you will, will know exactly what I mean when I say this. You know, the longer you walk with Jesus... If you've been a believer for a while, you've walked with him for a few years, maybe many, the more you begin to become aware of a, well, you become aware of a lot of a thing, a lot of things, but a couple are, are really big ones. One of the things you really begin to learn the longer and the closer you seek to walk with Jesus is how much more there is to know about him, how much more there is to know about the Lord. You know that far from getting to a point where we sort of figure him all out, we're like, oh my goodness, I've only gotten this far. That as I read his word, there's so much more about his power and his majesty and his holiness and his glory and his ways and his works and all the rest. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you, you realize how much there is to still discover and to know and how we really will spend all of eternity still learning and discovering and figuring out and how worthy he is of our worship and our devotion. Another thing you learn, you become more and more aware of the longer you walk with Jesus is not just how much there is to know about him, but how much more you need his grace. And how much more I, I needed as well than I did back at the start or earlier along the way. What do I mean by that? I mean, you begin to realize the, digger you de- uh, the, the, uh, the, the deeper you dig and the, the more open and you surrender to the Lord, you realize, you know what, in my life, maybe I've walked with Jesus for a while, but there's not just like closets and corners of sin to deal with. There are like whole wide vast swaths of, of sin, uh, attitudes and actions and speech and behavior that desperately need an encounter with the blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I mean, yes, he saved me, and I'm secure, and I'm on my way to heaven, but there's some stuff in there to deal with. And the longer you walk with him, the more grateful you are, but the more aware you are of of how much more you need him. That no one here on earth truly arrives. Stories told, it's a true story as far as I can tell, that many, many years ago when, when Grover Cleveland was president of the United States, this would have been the mid to late 1800s, says there was a nine-year-old girl who wrote him a letter. And in this letter, she wrote it to the president to admit to the president of the United States that she had reused two postage stamps that weren't properly canceled the first time they replied to a letter. You know how the post office, they stamp it so you don't reuse it, and and you got to go buy a new one. Apparently, she found a couple of stamps that weren't properly canceled, peeled them off one envelope, put them on the other, and the guilt was killing her. 
And so she wrote to the president. And, and in her letter, she said to President Cleveland, she, she said, Mr. President, I want to ask for your forgiveness for what I've done. It says she enclosed several cents to cover the, the cost of those stamps that she should have paid for them in the first place. And then she concluded her letter by making the president this promise. She said, Mr. President, I will never do that again. I won't do it again. You, know, you hear a story like that, I read a story like that, and think, well, that's kind of silly. I mean, a few cents, a couple of stamps, what's the big deal? It's probably the product of an overactive conscience. She probably had really overbearing parents who made her feel guilty about everything, and she just couldn't deal with it. And I, we could go that way. Or we could say, maybe we think something like that's silly, and I say this not just to you, but to us, because I'm too comfortable with my own sin, and I've learned to excuse it. And say, that stuff in my life that seems kind of silly isn't silly at all to God. Is it possible that, that in our own lives and our walks with Jesus, we're a little bit too comfortable with, with our own sinful attitudes and behavior? Is it possible we're more content than we'd like to admit with letting sinful attitudes and behaviors, speech and such, continue? Maybe we are. By comparison, look at the, the believers in Ephesus, what happened to them. Paul's been there a couple of years. The gospel has already, this is in the process of his couple of years there. The gospel is spreading. People are turning to Jesus. They're, they're moving forward in their faith. Paul's discipling them, we're told, day by day. And it says this. It says, many also of those who had believed, not those who hadn't believed, those who had, kept coming. This was a regular occurrence. Confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practice magic brought their books together. These would be obviously, uh, you know, spiritual, black arts, stuff like that, books together, and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of these books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So, verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, I'd like to suggest that if you want a biblical definition of revival, there it is in three verses. If you want to know what revival really is, biblical revival, it's right there, it's illustrated for us in three verses, because something I've learned about revival, and I didn't know this for a long time, and now I understand the biblical definition of revival, is not when the wicked, sinful world out there suddenly becomes aware of their sinfulness and falls in their faces and starts worshiping Jesus. That's not revival. That's, not where, that's the fruit of revival, that's not the root. You know what the root of revival is? And the same thing happens here among the people of God. And we say, yeah, I'm going to heaven, and, and you know, the long term is secure. But here in the meantime, maybe not so much. It's when those who already belong to God allow the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to penetrate their lives. It's when believers in Jesus examine themselves, me, you, all of us, through the prism of Scripture and say the following or something like it, for Jesus' sake, not anymore. Literally, for Christ's sake, I'm not living this way anymore. I'm not speaking this way anymore. For Jesus' sake, I'm not going to keep doing this and act like because I'm a Christian, it's okay and everybody understands anymore. That what's coming out of my mouth or going into it, what's passing before my eyes, what's harbored in my heart, for Jesus' sake, I'm not doing that anymore. And by God's grace and his help, it's time to change. You know, we pray for revival. In fact, Friday night, that's going to be at the Fresh Encounter, unless God changes something between now and then. Our theme is 
praying for revival. Revival doesn't start out there. It starts in here. And if God's going to revive and change our nation, he has to deal with his people first. Me, you, all of us included. It's coming clean before our Heavenly Father, even if, as according to verse 19, there's a cost. Maybe it's a financial cost. Maybe it's my reputation and my image. But that's how true revival starts. How do I know? Because of verse 20, the single word that begins it, so. It says, verses 18 and 19, those who believe kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. They were, they were bringing their, their sinful stuff literally in and having it burn, so. As a result... Therefore, in response to it, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Because God's people were willing to come clean before him. So let me ask you what is probably very obvious and a very personal question. In the context of verses 18 and 19, is there anything in your life that needs to burn? For Jesus' sake, not anymore. For Christ's sake, not anymore. Attitudes, actions, behaviors. It's not my job to pick what it is. It's your job, my job, to ask God, what might it be? Is there something over which you need to repent or confess or simply take to Jesus? If so, can I tell you something encouraging? He's not going to shame you when you do. He's not going to humiliate you, make you grovel at his feet and very reluctantly sort of kick your sin to the curb and say, you know, straighten up and, and sort of cross... In fact, if, if we could hear Jesus speak in a moment like that, if he were to speak to us, I don't know for sure, but I think it's far more likely to, that he would say to us, we'd hear him say, what took you so long? <laughs> Why'd you wait? We could have dealt with this a long time ago, and why are you continuing to live this way? You don't need to. I've got something better. Abundant life. Is it time for your own gospel-centered encounter with Jesus? Because here's the big idea of the message this morning. It's true in these three stories. If you need to go to Jesus, it'll be true for you. One way or another, Jesus always gets the win. One way or another, probably in a way we can't see coming, Jesus always gets the win. Opposition to his word, to his gospel, will be overcome. Deception and imitators will be revealed. And those of us who resist his advance in our own hearts, sooner or later, he'll break that down. Why not come to him willingly and let him deal with it now? There is a definitely a spiritual battle raging around us. It's been going on for all of human history, and it will go on until Jesus comes to take us home. It's happening, it's real, it's bigger and badder than we think. But Jesus has a way to pierce the darkness. He always has a way to pierce the darkness. And if you ask him to today in your life, he will. And so, Father, we, we humble our hearts before you. Father, we humble ourselves, our lives before you. And acknowledge, Lord, that, that there are always ways we, we need to surrender more to you. Father, not every one of us here this morning is grappling with some deep, dark, secret sin, some horrible attitude or sinful behavior, but maybe some are. Father, we pray that just in this moment, in the quietness of our heart, Father, we would just whisper to you, for Jesus' sake, not anymore. For Jesus' sake, not anymore.
And Father, for those of us who maybe that's not where we are today, even so, keep us in our hearts open, humble, and attentive to you, willing to grow, willing to learn to be to be corrected and convicted by your spirit, not because you despise us and tolerate us, but because you love us so much and want the very best. Father, some of us here this morning are hurting, some are tired, some are keeping great big secrets. Thank you that we can hand it all over to you. In one way or another, you'll get the win. All you're looking for is a willing, open heart. God, we love you so much. Thankful that you love us even more. And that no one who comes to you is ever cast out. We praise you for your grace this morning above all else. In Jesus' name.